0: Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning and welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV. This is Brad Furlan, your host. Uh, we're excited. I hope you had a, a great weekend. Actually, a little bit of nice weather, finally. And uh, my daughter and I, we have our t- 10 sheep, and we went right at them with uh, getting their hooves trimmed this morning, or not this morning, on on Saturday. And for the first time, my daughter, uh, I asked if she wanted to f- um, flip one over um, because that's what we do. We flip them over, and then uh, she cuts the hooves, and I hold them. Well, she grabs on. It's like a wrestle hold. You take your left hand, you reach underneath and grab their left hind leg and you pull it out from under them and over they go. And, uh, here's this hundred pound daughter of mine, uh, flipping over in 70 pound sheep. And, uh, she was pretty proud and I was proud of her. Uh, in the farm world, uh, this morning, I got up early as I do on Mondays to get here and, the, uh, my dogs, Norwegian elk hounds, they went out. It was very dark. One of them went dashing fast to the road. And I went, what is going on? And came dashing back fast to the house and sprayed by a skunk. <laughs> and, uh, oh boy. Uh, so I mixed up baking powder, dish soda, hydrogen peroxide, put them in the bathtub. Washed him down. He was humiliated, but uh, he smells a little bit better. And I'm hoping I don't smell too much of skunk this morning. I'll have to ask my guests as we move through the morning. And then lastly, uh, driving here this morning, I've been seeing, you know, for the last year, the interstate signs that are flashing with poetry uh, about, you know, what you should do, the rules on the road and all that. And I wrote one uh, that I'm going to pass along to the uh, transportation department if they want to use it, and it goes like this. In the left lane, do not linger, or you're bound to see an irate finger. So <laughs> that's my admonition for this morning on highway stuff. We have a great show this morning. We're going to be talking first with Laura Ullman, who is a WCX reporter, multimedia journalist. And talking about, you know, her her journey in life coming to Vermont, uh being in the younger demographics and and stories and things of interest for her. And then she and I are going to co-host the show for half an hour and we're going to interview Senator Thomas Chittenden and find out, you know, things coming up in Montpelier and and all of that and Find out from Laura what interests her from a TV reporter point of view and from a, you know, a younger perspective in Vermont. Then at 10 o'clock, I've got William Katz Burrell and Mary Streeter coming from sauna at Stowe. And this is a individualized evidence based treatment for substance use disorder. Uh, it's in Stowe, comfortable and serene and private environment. And we'll learn more about, uh, what they do and, and treatment and uh, things that can help people get back, get their lives back. So if you have an interest in substance use addiction, please join us at 10 o'clock. So with that, I want to welcome, I'm very excited to welcome to the studio, to WDEV Vermont Viewpoint, Laura Allman. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Brad. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Yeah, it's great. So listeners, I... Co-hosted a uh, substance use addiction summit, and uh, Laura came and covered it, and uh, was the reporter. And I was very interested in her interest in the story, and, and just in journalism in general. So, um, you you grew up in New York, and you came to Vermont. So, what what attracted you to Vermont? Well,
1: I was coming up here a lot with my family when I was younger. Um, but it wasn't until my best friend's older sister went to UVM and we came to visit her that I really started feeling connected um, to the place.
0: Yeah. Um, and was that skiing and things like that, the normal attraction?
1: It was actually summer. summer okay. like Champlain, and we went to the beach in Charlotte. Um, and we went swimming, and we ate around, walked around, and... It was a time where we had all gone off to our separate schools and um, came back together and really solidified that bond. So it's always been a special place to me.
0: Nice. And uh, you're at CAX. You did uh, a dual degree in journalism, radio, television, film. Uh, you did political philosophy uh, what, and studied abroad as well, right?
1: I'm so interested by everything. And I think journalism is choosing a career in lifelong learning. And so being able to think about political philosophy and to think about the way that the world really works and sort of get a grasp on how everything's working in symbiosis and also butting heads, that, that's kind of what drew me to this career and to journalism.
0: And how early were you um, thinking journalism was a, a pathway for you?
1: Well, I've always been interested in film and documentary, and in our freshman year of school at UT, you have to take another communications class, and I took Fundamental Issues in Journalism with my professor, Tracy Dahl, I believe his name is, and we got into sort of the First Amendment and the problems that journalism faced today, and I had no idea what a service it was, and... I wanted to couple film with service, and I found that TV journalism attempts and sometimes succeeds to do that.
0: And you run your own camera, so is that uh, something you learned early on in school or or on the job at CAX?
1: Neither. I've always loved cameras ever since I was a kid. I had a small point-and-shoot I'd bring with me everywhere, and and, um, then I got into those, um, what are they called? Were you the disposable cameras and i love shooting with film and then a dslr and then in school i saved up and i bought myself a panasonic gh4 and then that's when i really started making films on my own but now with these video cameras i just learned that with cax
0: yeah um you become the jack of all trades right with
1: master of none
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so with um getting started in journalism um you you got a job with really one of the the goliaths i said off air of uh journalism and media w c a x and uh what um how did was that a long interview process hard job to land or they just said wow this this person's so brilliant we're gonna hire her right away
1: <laughs> um. That's funny you ask. I didn't know that WCX was a Goliath when I got here or when I was interviewing. Um, But when I got here and people started telling me what the station meant to them, that was such a wonderful surprise. And it made me know that I had to try hard and do my best and stay by ethical standards at all times. But the interview process... I was living in Madrid at the time, and I had maybe sent out 60 or 70 applications, um, and I got maybe four or five bites. And I was interviewing as sort of a producer role at CNN and then um, at WCAX. And I had those same interviews within two days and on my birthday. And I interviewed with Roger Garrity, our news director, first, and he only asked me maybe two or three questions, but I asked him a bunch, and I just saw his eyes light up about the way that he spoke about WCAX and spoke about the industry. And then when I interviewed the next day, the person didn't really seem as passionate about what they were doing. And as soon as that happened, I withdrew my application, um, and I just felt really committed to Roger. And I think that he, we had a real connection at that point, and so I had a good feeling about it. And then on my birthday, he offered me the job. Yeah.
0: What a great birthday present. And I use the term Goliath, and I, I use it in the most complimentary way for us lifelong Vermonters. Uh, CAX was the mainstay, and, and you talked about trust and reliability and all of that. CAX was right at the top always for that and family-owned business now it's changed a little bit but you know still still same philosophy which is great so um coming to Vermont what was you, you had the early exposure but you had opportunity globally really you you've already you went abroad for for college you you had the world as your oyster so to speak so Vermont what What really drew you to the early experience? or
1: Well, Roger, and just I had had enough experience working that what really matters is your boss and the place. And so I had Roger, and then thinking about Vermont sort of abstractly before I got here, I knew it was beautiful. Um, But when I got here, I really realized that the reason people come here to work and to stay and to raise families is it's a place where... If you want to do something, that's going to be you. You're going to be the person that does that. It's small enough that you can really be whoever you want to be, and there are people here who want to mentor you and want to give you those opportunities, and it's definitely a place where you can grow and really find yourself and your skills and sink into that with the comfort that people are going to support you. It's not as competitive as other places, and the people here are just amazing and through the interviewing that I did and the reporting of the flooding, and then with the story that we were talking about with the opiate summit and the stories I've done after that, um, I feel like I've really learned more about what it means to be a Vermonter and what community means to a Vermonter.
0: Yeah, wonderful to hear. And, you know, we've talked on this show, the uh, politicians are always talking about bringing younger people to Vermont. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, we're talking this morning with Laura Allman. She is a WCX reporter, multimedia journalist for CAX. Uh, you came to Vermont. Is it, is it difficult as a young person to, and I don't want to really uh, guide the conversation too much, but is it hard, is it hard to Find housing, find, you know, all the stuff that you need, or or did you maneuver that well?
1: I think in general, yes, it is hard to find housing, especially if you're just moving here. I was so lucky every single time. I found my first roommate on a Facebook group, and then my second roommate, I was scrambling. I had to find a house in 10 days and I ended up getting super lucky in having three or four people ask me to be their roommate. But now I live with Daniela, who is a producer at WCAX, and uh, it really worked out. I'm, I'm so grateful. Wow,
0: well, that's great. So the, the networking is important, right? And then you start getting to know the community. And getting to know the community, how, how do you um, generate um, interest in stories and then find the people? What do you do?
1: that's a great question um finding stories is the hardest part of the job especially because we're expected to have two at every morning meeting a lot of the time it's consuming other media um reading local newspapers and reading books and watching TV and then localizing broader issues a lot of it's having conversations with my friends and then thinking, I wonder how that applies in my community. A lot of it's talking to you and other people that I've interviewed in previous stories and then stumbling upon another problem that's worth investigating. And hopefully we can get that later with Senator Chittenden. And finding people is usually really easy. Um, just a couple keywords in Google, phone numbers, and then I call like crazy. And I'm not afraid to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind bothering people, which means I can bring a story out. So, yeah, it, it's not too challenging, but sometimes it's overwhelming.
0: My experience is people sometimes when I approach them, they say that they're shy or introverted or something like that. But mostly, when they uh, get going, there you, you have no problem with it, right? It's just it's a full interview and pretty easy to do. <laughs>
1: Yes. Everybody that I've interviewed usually is excited about it. And I think having comfort and setting boundaries and kind of explaining what the interview process will look like usually calms people down. But even here, I was so nervous to come on. And (laughs) it's coming more naturally just sitting here and knowing that it's just us and nobody's watching, just listening.
0: (laughs) Right. Um If there's anybody out there who wants to join our conversation, please give us a call at 802-244-1777. If you've got questions for Laura and her uh, start on journalism here in Vermont, uh, we welcome your call. Uh, Laura, you came from New York. Um, you talked about Roger Garrity as somebody who has been inspirational and in mentoring to you. Uh, but you also, off air, you told me that there were other... Uh, mentors in your life that have been uh, helpful in your journey. Can you tell me more about that?
1: So I'll start from most recently, and then I'll go to the beginning. The latest person who mentored me and is a big reason why I'm here is a man named Alejandro Tamayo, and he's a visual journalist in San Diego for the San Diego Union-Tribune. And I was talking to him multiple times before I applied anywhere and I asked him how did you get to where you are because he has a great job and he started as a teacher and then moved into TV so that's why I started applying to TV. I originally thought that I was going to go into print and do video and photo for print but in the beginning I had three really strong presences in my life that shaped me my mom, my dad and then um, my babysitter Mary Lou. Mary Lou is from Guatemala, and she is um, an immigrant. She came here when she was 12 or 13, and her story was immensely inspiring to me, um, and it was at a time where a lot of people um, were angry that a lot of people were immigrating to this country and stealing jobs, and I felt like if I could share Mary Lou's story, then people could understand more of why people are coming here and be empathetic. And then through my mom and my dad, they're two of the most hardworking, passionate people. And we were raised sort of by two values. One, to be kind and be curious. And then the other is to work hard to make the world a better place. And through their parenting, that was really solidified. My dad's a doctor um, in New York. um, And we talked about this before, but he was there. As a first responder at 9/11, he was a first responder during the AIDS epidemic, um, first responder during COVID, and then even when Ebola was coming to New York, he was sort of part of the organizing process for the hospital he worked at at the time. And so he handles calamity with grace, and that's inspirational. And then my mom, she is she kind of invented her job. She is an a project manager for education programs that get implemented in schools. So sometimes she'll write grants. Sometimes she'll analyze the implementation of grants at schools. And um, she likes to, she feels education is what can be the system that solves the world. So that's how she's involved.
0: Yeah. And I, I raise all this because I, I think it's so important how mentoring um, is so good. And, you know, we talk about the apple falling not far from the tree. When you get the guidance and then you pass it on and you've got this core value uh, philosophy of of helping and this curiosity, which is you had mentioned or I read about that listening is really one of your skills. And with that listening, then you can take things forward. Uh, so that's a, a very good attribute. We're talking this morning with Laura Ullman. Uh, she is a WCAX reporter a multimedia journalist, among many other things. Uh, what about in your free time? What do, what do you do for fun, or is there such a thing in journalism now? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, ever since I got a boyfriend, it's been less free time. But
0: <laughs>
1: I mean, just hanging out with him is a blast. We watch a lot of Parts Unknown and No Reservations with Anthony Bourdain, and we cook, and we like to try recipes that we see on TV and then make them. Um, but I paint and draw a lot. I like watercolor and oils and I read a bunch and I practice bass. Those are what I mostly do on here.
0: Are you gonna be in a famous band and get your autograph today or
1: Oh, I highly doubt that. I started off as a punk Punk basses, which I think is the lowest level of all bass, um, and I'm still coming off of that. But I'm trying to learn the line to the Ughum Boogum song. Do you know that one?
0: I don't. It
1: goes, <insecure tales> <learns> you never heard it.
0: You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned Anthony Bourdain. He he's one of my heroes. Actually, I think he was absolutely an amazing journalist, and you know he he cooked, but really his Journey to find people and their stories was remarkable, and and plus suffered with his own depression, which ultimately took his life, I believe. Uh, so any, uh, we have a couple minutes, but anything outstanding with with Anthony, a story that he did that you loved?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Okay.
0: So many, right? There's
1: so many. You know, he was he's one of my heroes too, and. Um, It's actually hard to talk about. I really mourn his loss and what he did to bring the world to everyone's front door. And I think what I love so much about journalism and what I hope is at the root of it, it's informing the public and, you know, holding the government accountable. But I also think it's about inspiring empathy. And Anthony was a master at that. He humanized everybody. And he was honest when he didn't like somebody. But he made you learn and he made you love.
0: I, I will briefly say that my, one of my favorite episodes, and I don't um, necessarily recommend this, but he was up in Montreal and, The final scene they were they were in the back of a pickup truck they were so drunk they couldn't even walk they had to (laughs) they had to be uh escorted uh in a nice way in a nice montreal way to wherever they were going (laughs) to sleep the night away
1: (laughs) classic anthony (laughs) yeah
0: beautiful man uh talking with uh laura allman she's going to help me in the next uh half hour interview senator thomas chittenden If you've got questions, 802-244-1777. This is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint. Good morning. This is Brad Furlan, your Monday host on Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV, here in historic Waterbury, Vermont. I started my day with uh, my our dogs going out and one of them getting sprayed by a skunk. And fortunately I had just enough baking um, soda or baking powder to, to make the elixir with the dish soap and hydrogen peroxide to throw him into the bathtub and uh, scrub him off. He needs therapy. I need therapy. The skunk needs (laughs) therapy. It's uh it was an eventful morning. Uh, been talking this morning with Laura Ullman, a uh, multimedia journalist for WCAX, uh, up and coming star. And I asked her to stay with me this morning for the next half hour and be my co-host to interview my next guest, our good friend from Chittenden County, Senator Thomas Chittenden. Welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Brad. Can you hear me okay?
0: I can hear you fine. Yeah.
1: Morning.
2: Hello. Nice to e- sort
1: of meet you, Laura. It's over the phone. Yes, yeah, nice to almost virtually meet you.
0: So Senator Chittenden has been a guest of mine um, a few times over the last year and bringing updates about Montpelier. Uh, he has three kids. He's a expert on creamy eating and snack bars, and uh, he also has uh, great insights on Montpelier and uh, the political climate. Uh, so I just, I'll start, but uh, Laura can jump in. Uh, hopefully you had a good summer, Senator, and um, also looking forward to um, going back in January and maybe things that are on your mind, having had a little bit of a break.
2: Sure. And uh, I want to say I really liked your poem for the uh, digital signs along the interstate. It just <laughs> might be a little too long to squeeze into the, the constraints of those the size, number of characters, um, but yes, happy to talk about the legislature and I'm glad you brought up the creamy eating. It's my retirement plan. I'm going to write a book <laughs> about the best creamy spots in the great state of Vermont. Um, certainly something I take very seriously. Um, As for the coming session, I'm actually meeting with a lot of people these days. So over the past couple of weeks, I've had meetings with the SBBA, VPIRG representatives, Keep Vermont Cool, I was out at Dynapower, Moms Demand Action, as well as meeting with all the constituents and having uh, coffee with previous senators to get their perspectives on what they'd be focused on gearing up for the coming session, responding to a lot of emails. And I'll say I can be happy to talk about the big topics. And I think uh, there's an interest from, I was listening to your first segment there talking about housing. Certainly, one of the main reasons why I ran for this office is I want to make it easier to build houses in the state because all roads lead to housing. When we look at our workforce issues, our climate issues, our affordability issues, I think it all comes back to making it easier and ultimately more affordable to purchase, build and buy houses in the state. Those are the big issues. There's also a lot of small issues that I'm sort of percolating with working on some bills. But as much as they're small, it just means they don't get a lot of attention from great reporters like Laura Ullman. Uh, But there's certainly important issues that constituents care about that I'm working on uh, with legislative council to better understand and think about where Vermont could do things better.
0: And what are some of the little ones
2: then? So um, right now I've I don't know if you know this, but the current rules for bus occupancy, school bus occupancy has to do with 13 inches, which means right now in a lot of school districts, maybe you've experienced this, Brad, where you are, but I know in South Burlington where I live, we've had to, uh, um, um, many days just for reasons of not having enough bus drivers, um, they canceled bus service, leaving a lot of parents high and dry, um, which is, it's just difficult and you know, we're not alone. We're not immune. School districts aren't immune from this problem. And so what we're seeing is to, try to serve, uh, if you were down a bus driver, we're needing to uh, get creative, which means more and more students on buses. And our current safety standards require 13 inches for each student, which is across the board, regardless of size. So I'm, I'm looking at language that. This might make it clear um, that high schoolers and juniors maybe need more than 13 inches, which is effectively three kids per seat. But to try to put three high schoolers in one school bus seat doesn't seem necessarily safe. So I have some school bus drivers reaching out to me about the standards that they're using at the local level, just cost implications, so there's no easy answers, but I'm just worried that our buses might be Um, exceeding their capacity, and maybe the better answer is just making sure we find it easier and more attractive to hire bus drivers in the area. But that goes back to housing because nobody can afford to live here to work to provide or work in those jobs. I'm also working with the SBBA on stolen goods. So I don't know if you've been following, but retail theft is up, shoplifting is up, and there's a lot of effort on a current bill to make it easier for state's attorneys to charge individuals that are repeat repeat offenders over a period of time to accumulate their offenses towards a felony. In my discussions, I'm I'm happy I I support that, and I understand some of the pushback on it. But I also hear from my conversations that there's uh, known individuals that are buying these stolen goods from repeat offenders, individuals that are stealing over and over again high-market resale items, not for personal use, but to resell in the black market. And so I'm asking Legislative Council to give you an update. How do we compare to the rest of the state, and would we maybe decrease some of the demand for high-value re- frequent shoplifting if we made it even more um, punitive if you get caught reselling stolen goods? So looking up the supply chain, so to speak, at the wholesalers of stolen items. So. And then some other things regarding wind turbines, which is a big topic in Veggie. But there's a few sm- smaller things, but definitely still big things.
1: So issues like school bus occupancy, and other issues that are sort of small and individual. How do you get in touch with your constituents to sort of find out these problems? How do you stay looped in?
2: So uh, I always say the world is run by people who show up, and so my short answer to you, Laura, is I always just show up. If uh, people invite me to anything, the first thing I do is if I'm free on the calendar, and I put it on the calendar, and then I, I go. Uh, so I just like to talk to people. But I'll also say in this day and age, I get a, I get a lot of emails. And so I don't necessarily uh, use all the platforms. I'm not on Instagram, but, and I don't, is it Twitter, X? I don't know what that is, but I do get those things, what X is. But um, I'll say email is very common, as well as community events. So um, that's how I mostly hear from people.
1: This was from a school board meeting that you heard about the bus occupancy issues, or how did it come to you?
2: So I think it was a two and a half two weeks ago um, there was a Monday where just the uh, South Burlington school district just didn't have bus service and so they emailed everybody on Friday said due to shortage of drivers everybody needs to get their kids into school which also created a huge traffic jam or congestion on Monday morning which other people were complaining about. So that was some of the some of the backdrop of the topic um, so it's been dominant in the community I live in which is in, of course my senate district uh, which there is some social media chatter on that as well, talking about solutions to it. So, the other side of this is if we cram more kids under the school buses, the parents and the drivers are also concerned that that's creating a safety issue. And the current standard allows for, up to, regardless of size of student, three kids per seat, as I'm understanding it. The one other caveat I'd add is I'm not necessarily going to go in um, guns a blazing to change our bus occupancy rules this coming session. These are things that I'm understanding and trying to uh, better understand myself, collecting different perspectives. And I've reached out to some stakeholders, so maybe it's premature for me to be talking about it on a radio show. But to give you an idea of what legislators are doing right now, myself being one of them, I'm just engaging from the community and constituents what topics they want to possibly consider revisions to
0: you had mentioned the uh, uh theft and stolen goods and uh, you know the buyers are will you be looking at all any correlation to uh substance use addiction and if this is um escalated because uh people are desperate for money to support their habits are you hearing anything about that
2: i, I am so um, in these conversations, which I've had with law enforcement, with the with individuals of uh, major retail centers within my district, uh, they often uh, definitely highlight that the people stealing these high resale uh, black market items are not using it for personal use, but are using it because they're persons suffering through substance abuse challenges, and so they are liquidating they to. What I've been told, but again, this is anecdotal, and that's where I'm looking to get better understanding of what's truly happening. I'm I'm not out there; I don't know firsthand, unless I only hear from leaders. If there's only five people that are buying up all these goods from 50 people that keep stealing from all of our major retail centers to then resell in the black market, I kind of want to go after those five individuals to make it less attractive for them to resell stolen goods which is an indirect way to address the substance use problem, which is a, a bigger topic. And I, I know that's a big issue of yours, Brad, that I, I would love to hear more of your thoughts on. I'm always looking to understand how I can help more to address that that core issue of the problem.
0: Well, I thank you for that, uh, Senator. And it there really is a correlation, and we're hoping that there is a political appetite for um, looking more at the substance use addiction issue this coming January. And, Laura has been uh, really engaged with that with with stories. Maybe there's more Laura. you can talk about that,
1: sure, but my question is, is this something that is going to be taken to the state house, or do you think this is something that needs to be addressed in the county and the courts?
2: I would say. Both. Um, so I serve on the finance and transportation, and I'll say substance use doesn't necessarily fall directly in the domain of those, so I haven't dug as deep as other committees. On this topic, I always look to my seatmate and mentor, good friend Ginny Lyons, who's the chair of Senate Health and Welfare. And every time I raise this with her, I have the full impression that she understands the magnitude and scope of this and has, we're continually working on it. I'm welcoming always of advice on where the State House should do things differently, and that's where I usually engage those conversations and try to bring Senator Lyons into them. At the county level, I I think we need to support our judiciary processes more. Well, that's more from the retail theft side. But on the substance use, um, I'm hearing concerns about the hub-and-spoke model that hasn't been working and that we need to rethink decentralizing services. But that's, again, not an area I'm an expert on, and I'm looking for better understanding.
0: We're talking this morning with uh, Senator Thomas Chittenden. My co-host this morning is Laura Allman, a uh, journalist for WCAX. She's helping me out. Uh, Welcome back, Senator Chittenden. Transportation um, Committee, a lot of construction going on in Vermont, and I'm always curious about priorities. Uh, You know, this morning when I drove by exit 17, there were fifty cars heading to the islands, you know, sort of behind the light, uh, that kind of thing. Winooski's getting uh looks like a really good lane uh accessibility now. How, how does that work? Are you, is is your committee and, and legislators, are you the genesis of all this?
2: we approve the transportation budget um the committees senators uh, are not the ones out there on the on the streets and sizing things up and working directly with engineering and approving contracts but instead that's the department of transportation does the heavy lifting they bring forward priorities we set priorities through a variety of different tools and then they put forward a budget through the governor's budget and then the, that's where the legislature gets a chance to evaluate where they're shifting where they're focusing dollars and if there's um, things that we think are more important less important that's where conversations and negotiations occur
0: and money, of course, right? Correct. Yeah. And um, do you can you go above budget? Do you or do you just you have to have a certain amount of money and then you go from there?
2: Well, the legislature sets the budget, and so just this past session, uh, the governor put forward a budget. It was a reasonable budget, a great budget, um, but the legislature did have some other priorities, some additional priorities to, in, for example. Um, I remember hearing from Senator Kitchell, the chair of appropriations after the budget's address, that she was concerned with some of the the funding levels for mental health services in the state. And so that was a concern that with the budget constraints presented, we wanted to find more dollars for it. But finding more dollars means you need to raise those monies. And that's where additional um, revenues were raised, as uh, I think many people know. The DMV fees, as well as many of our service fees, um, hadn't been updated and eight years, sometimes 30 years, and so we went through meticulously and um, did an inflation-adjusted relative to our peers on uh, just about all of our DMV fees as well as our professional services registration fees to raise additional revenues so that those can create offsets, allowing for more funding for other areas. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. Uh, If you have questions for Senator Chittenden, give us a call at 802-244-1777. I'm here with Laura Ullman. Uh, One Quick question, um, getting back to the housing, Laura's going to need to work at CAX for a while, then she's going to need to buy a house and live happily ever after in Vermont. I don't
1: know if I'm ever going to be able to afford a house with my salary, but <laughs> hopefully a long time in Vermont.
0: So what, um, is, is this an Act 250 issue? Is it boiled down to that? I know it's cliche, but um, what what are some of the remedies?
2: So, I, I definitely – and Act 250 has done a lot of good things for Vermont, but it, it does – it is not written in stone and it isn't infallible, so I, I definitely think a lot of the solutions that Vermont can do, the Vermont legislature can do, uh, look are with regulatory reform. Um, last session, I was pushing – and I there is going to be a study coming out, and this is something I want to get my shoulder behind again – we have this arbitrary 10-unit threshold in Act 250, where as soon as you build a 10th unit on either a 10-acre parcel or a 50-acre parcel, it triggers Act 250 review, and that's been in place for 50 years. And as I've asked different people, why 10? Why isn't it more of a threshold relative to the nature of the environment, whether or not the community it's in has local zoning, whether or not that parcel is arable land with Vergen's clay, ideal for housing. Uh, the 10-unit threshold is where you can see where, I don't know if you know South Burlington, but it's often called a suburban area, and you can drive down Dorset Street, Spear Street, Shelburne Road, and there's all these nine-unit developments on parcels that could have sustained 15 units, or maybe 18 units. But that threshold avoids a great deal of paperwork and ultimately cost. And if I have it my way, Laura, you will be able to buy a house. But what we need to do is allow for around the edges, on things like that, to allow more housing to be built. Another big thing that I'm optimistic, I've had good conversations with Mayor Mira Weinberger and Senator Ron Hinsdale, municipal delegation, that would be where act 250 could go through the local process reducing redundancy for all the communities that have well developed planning and zoning that would both expedite as well as reduce uncertainty we do that with fire code so the city of south burlington the city of burlington other large municipalities throughout the state can enact and enforce and look at fire code to uh, to allow permits to be issued at the state level through a certification agreement process, a delegation with the state, but at the local level, the same thing could apply and would do a lot to make it easier, less certain, and faster to build houses so that Laura can buy a house that she wants somewhere in Chittenden County or elsewhere. And that's the last thing, Brad, so I think to your answer. And I don't think the state is the solution for all these things. We do need to attract more investment in the state, and I think there's a lot of good things happening there. We just need the state to create a welcoming environment, and I'd like to see the next 10 to 20 years, more growth across the state. If you look at population growth for the last 10 years, Chittenden County has seen leaps and bounds. That's where all the growth has been occurring, and we've seen population decreases throughout the rest of the other, what some people jokingly call tongue-in-cheek, the real Vermont. I'd like to find ways to to allow and foster and encourage more housing growth throughout the entire state so that we're not just pocketing it all in Chittenden County, only just because there's so much great, uh, great Vermont to see that people want to appreciate and enjoy, and they'd be able to do that if there was more housing.
1: Well, thanks for thinking about my future house. Um, I don't have exact plans for what I want it to look like, but I at least you have it sure. in mind. Um, I have a question. I know what you guys do in the state house: sit in committee, talk, vote. What? Is a day in the life for a politician outside of the state house?
2: It's a great question. So it is a part-time, citizen-based legislature. My primary job function is I work at UVM. I'm teaching all afternoon today, going into class at noon in the business school. I I do uh, classes on databases, spreadsheets, and process models. So uh, other than that, I'm a a father. I'm a Rotarian, and I I serve on probably too many. different volunteer efforts, Um, and I've been paring that back of late in order to free up more time for my my Senate responsibilities. So to answer your question, um, this is the the average day in my life is me trying uh, representing the people that I I meant to my constituency by having a full-time job, raising a family, paying the bills, paying the mortgage, paying the taxes um, that I have to pay so that I can reflect what they're experiencing in my service in the legislature. So Um, I'd like to say every day in life is representative, if not comparable, to the constituency to which I serve.
1: So you say that you um, are a part of a lot of volunteer opportunities. What organizations do you think need more help?
2: That's a great question. Maybe I'll reframe your question. I remember uh, the gentleman uh, up in St. Albans that writes a lot of great pieces, and his name is escaping me. I bet you Brad will be able to help me out with it. He uh, wrote a great opinion piece, I want to say a year ago, looking at the per capita of number of uh, nonprofit organizations in Vermont relative to New Hampshire. And we have um, a disproportionate. I forget the exact ratio. I'd have to go back to it. But his point was we have tons of nonprofits. They're all, I bet, they're all worthy of additional resources. But what I would argue is, as I look at an efficiency standpoint and creating economies of scale, I think what we might benefit more from is to have cease less fracturing of our nonprofit and volatile organizations to then provide and share back-end services to reduce some of their overhead costs to be able to achieve a lot of the objectives. Laura, I would say I haven't, nobody has sat down with me with an organization that is not worthy of additional resources. I would just say in order to provide resources and get the most for our, compared to other states, small amount of dollars available to fund these things, we should try to drive efficiencies to reduce the cost of those in order to um strengthen our or double or, or increase our impact.
0: We're we're running out of time. I wanna thank you, Senator Chittenden. You may have been talking about Emerson Lynn, editorialist. Right. Um wanna thank you for your time and I wanna uh thank Laura for interview and co hosting with me today. We'll have you back to co host some more so that you can get more radio under your belt and uh, <laughs> be awesome. buy that house in Chittenden County. Uh up up near the Chittenden County Cider Mill.
1: Oh, that's exactly what I want. It's all coming to me now.
0: All right.
2: Nice we- to you, Laura. Feel free to reach out anytime.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you, Senator. Uh, this is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint. We'll be right back after this.